The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Quasi Quatanga surprised everyone with his fiscal event last week, but it's not gone down well with the money markets. Yes, the pound fell to new lows and it could hit parity with the US dollar for the first time ever. That's not good news for a country fighting hard to beat inflation. And on that, whilst Quasi wants to expand the economy, the Bank of England is feverishly trying to slow things down, hoping that will stop inflation rising further. But though he might have got the time wrong, could his approach ultimately be the right one? He wants to drive growth, and maybe tax cuts and targeted investment is the right way of going about it. Or is there a better way of getting Britain out of the malaise of the last decade or so, which has seen slow growth and falling real wages? Something has to be done, surely. But what? Let's look at the options this week. The why curve. Well, you know what, Raj? I mean, growth is a problem. If we look over the, the last decade in this country, pre-pandemic, I mean, the quarterly GDP growth figures rarely got over 0.6 or 0.7% per quarter. And then if you look towards the end of that decade, you know, just before the pandemic, I mean, I don't even remember, we were talking about all sorts of problems with an economic slowdown. GDP had actually basically ground to a halt uh, and people's wages were going but, down. But and- the reasons for that are many and complex. I mean, it goes mm. back a very long way. We haven't been a high growth economy for a very long time. And the sense that how you adjust that, what the reasons are behind it, is it productivity? Is it, mm. uh, what is it exactly that's the problem? But then also to do something as radical as has gone on uh, this week, the last few days, at a point where you don't really know what the problem is, seems absurd. Well, I mean, it's. Uh, I think maybe the timing is wrong, but there's also the question about, and you mentioned the word productivity, and that, that is part of it. And I think this is the, there's, there's two problems, I think. One is the, t- the timing, trying to go for growth, uh, and you have to wonder what the, a realistic growth figure is. Well, it's not anyway. 2.5% that Liz Trust says is mm. the target. Well, it's great to have a target, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, there's a question mark about that as well. Do you know? Do we? Can the planet support if every country, every economy grows at two and a half percent at a time where we're running short on energy mm. uh, and resources and, generally? Yeah, I mean, maybe we have to uh, prepare for a low growth economy rather than one which uh, keeps on ticking away. But you know, historically, 2.5% would have seen like a very modest aim. Uh, but these days, maybe. That's that. That's the first question out of, out of all of it. Secondly, this whole thing, you know, as we said in the introduction, the Bank of England is trying to slow the economy to get inflation down. Why are we going for growth at a time when the only thing the Bank of England can do in response to that is to push up interest rates even more? But also, will it do anything to growth? This is, I mean, the, the whole hmm. idea, and we've been down this road, even on this podcast, we've been down this road. Do tax cuts actually make much difference in that way? Well. Yeah, the Laffer principle. The Laffer curve. But yeah. is, it, is it a sense that this is uh, really a problem which they decide to throw a very radical solution at, which the chances of it going horribly wrong are very big. Well, the people who do, who do go down this uh, the, the, this line, you know, they do quote Laffer and they say, well, it's worked in the past. If we cut uh, taxes, then that uh, increases uh, the money that can be invested and that creates jobs and that creates growth and, the, you know, everyone benefits trickle down. Uh, but, you know, you look at when it really worked, it only really worked in the 80s, you know, when Margaret Thatcher cut tax but look at what taxes went from a very 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 high level 83 percent was the top level of tax back then they took they took it down to 60 and they eventually took it down to 40 taking it from 45 to 40 no one 
is going to notice the difference. I mean, and it's, many people have drawn have gone even a decade before that and said, mm. "What about 1972? Tony Barber's famous yeah. uh, rush for growth, there. yeah, uh, and and that went horribly wrong, horribly wrong." Yeah, absolutely. So there's uh, all of that. The question about uh, uh, you know w- whether it's going to work, and the and the big fear is uh, you know that it's not going to. The other argument that's being given is that well, this is going to draw people in. You know, people are going to want to come to Britain, whether we allow them in or not is another question. Well, they, in theory, at I, least they're going to vastly increase the number of of immigrant visas that are allowed, which is fascinating when you consider where they're coming from. Well, I wonder, wonder if the uh, the people. Yes, and, and, and actually, that is the only way you're going to drive this growth. Because if you if you're looking at uh, you know uh, pushing up GDP. Uh, and we've got unemployment at the pretty much the record lows, then unless you're going to massively increase productivity per person, like quadruple it or, you know, multiply it by five or six times, well, you're not going to get that growth. So you need to bring people in, which is not what people voted for when they voted for Brexit, it of course. It gets very complicated. The big questions really yeah, the thing are. Is, is, well, different coloured people as well. Rather than getting, let's not go down well, that road, <laughs> But I'm just thinking yes. Brexit voters, all of a sudden when they start seeing, oh, there's all these non-Europeans coming in to fund this growth uh, that is trickled down thanks to what, what quasi- There's what a lot of done. political baggage that comes along mm. with this, of course. But I think that the two key questions this week are is it going to work yeah and if it doesn't work is it actually going to pull the whole shebang down around our ears which is what a lot of economists are saying this is high risk high wire stuff yeah and and you know i think the other principle as well which is being ignored is it's because it's all happening so quickly is that what people want from an economy don't people want to invest and live as well i mean part of the argument is if we cut taxes then people who might be uh have a predisposition to moving uh, or disposition to moving overseas uh, because they get a better tax rate well you know you could go and live in the uae but try buying a house in the uae it's horrendously expensive i haven't tried but it's i mean neither have i but just go shopping online and see how much so wherever income tax is low you're paying for it in some other way where people choose to live wealthy people will choose to live where the standard of living is good there's a stable economy and guess what a stable currency and, uh, you know, don't kind of have that. No, at least no. we don't at the moment. But I mean, you know, all this needs to go into the mix and let's get a sense of can it work? What are the consequences if it doesn't? Are we? I mean, I, I went to see a great play about Margaret Thatcher this week, bizarrely. <laughs> and it reminded me, you know, I mean, I remember people being completely uh, appalled by the first couple yeah. of years of her administration from 79 onwards, saying exactly the same. She's pulling the house down. She's destroying everything. It'll be a total disaster. And many economists thought that. And, you know, she didn't get it all right by any means. I, I, I thought she was appalling. But, hmm. but what happened in the end was something that changed the economy of Britain some people think in a good way yeah and and you know we could have another discussion for us to have about what's gone wrong like we uh, really do need to renationalize the railways don't we and some of the other things that she privatized but let, let's let's Show talk your to party colors <laughs> let's well no look i think i'm pretty evenly balanced really i mean you know i could uh, i can stand balanced up balanced isn't the word i'd use but yes you, you're, you're, you're certainly uh, <laughs> let's yeah. talk to a man who perhaps is more balanced well certainly a man who's uh, kept track of the uk economy for a long time uh, he's written about it endlessly of course uh, you probably know the name martin wolf chief economics commentator at the financial chimes he joins us now so martin first of all at a time when the bank of england and you know central banks all over the world are trying to soften demand to try and keep inflation under control here we have the uk government pushing on with plans or at least they are for now uh, that they reckon is going to drive growth i mean what were they thinking is this the right time to do that i mean they're loggerheads with the bank aren't they well the short answer to that is unquestionably yes um what is not clear is whether they thought of themselves as doing that. They made a great uh, 
business of saying this is a plan for growth, but they've never made it clear any more than the person they are following. Essentially, they're following Ronald Reagan with this in very different contexts, but they never made it clear whether this is a demand strategy or a supply strategy. And the general rhetoric around it from the chancellor is that it's supply. They don't talk about it as being Keynesian economics on steroids, as it were, any more than Reagan did. They talk about it as supply. So their view is, or their express view seems to be, that these tax cuts uh, will lead to an immense expansion in supply. There will be innovation and investment and entrepreneurship and it will just explode tomorrow and so growth and supply will will increase so much that we won't need uh, uh, um, tighter demand policies from the bank. Or Martin, really are, they, are they wrong? Are they wrong in that? I mean, obviously, perhaps the scale of it, but, but the actual idea that having more money in our pockets might mean uh, growth surely is sane, isn't it? If we ignore the timing, if I mean, if if times were normal, could they be right? It does get down to the is it demand led or supply driven argument, doesn't it? Which is you know as as old as the hills. You can pick a side on that. I think that we now have a lot of evidence on this, and uh, because it's been tried, as it were, it was tried in America in the eighties, and in a slightly different way also by Britain under Margaret Thatcher. She never went for this sort of fiscal cutting. She was very fiscally conservative, much more a Rishi Sunak person than a Liz Truss person. But on the really big issue, um, the incentive effects of tax cuts of the kind we've seen, and don't forget most of the tax cuts are actually reversals of tax increases that have not happened, so they're not real cuts at all. Um, The incentive effects of these are really uh, not zero, but they're very small. And the the reason for that is, one, they're not very big. I mean, the, the tax cuts themselves from where we started are really not very large. And the, the second reason is that they have what we economists call income effects and substitution effects, which means if you've got a lower tax rate, you might work a bit more because leisure has become more expensive, as it were, work has become more profitable. But at the same time, you're better off. And if you're very well off already and you're better off, well, you might just decide to take more leisure. And the evidence is pretty clear that the amount of additional work people do in response to modest tax cuts, except at the very bottom where they don't really care, um, is really very small. And then if you talk about really big things like investment, um, uh, by corporations, well, we're, we're going back to tax. They want to go back to the the tax rates of corporations we had under George Osborne in 2015. That doesn't do anything for investment. We have the lowest investment rate in, among all the major industrial countries. That wasn't changed by that. It's, that's not the main determinant of investment. It has almost nothing to do with innovation, uh, the, the tax system. The basic truth, I can go into through it in detail, is the tax cuts of what of the kind we see may induce a very small increase in supply, 0.1%, 0.2%. The idea that it would quadruple underlying productivity growth is a complete and total fantasy. So it doesn't attract big beasts into the economy, which is really what Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss are hoping, that people, that, that, that companies, that individuals, high net wealth individuals, are much more inclined to be in the UK if they if the top rate of tax, for example, 45% is gone. That, that, there's a kind of logic to that, surely. 
No, I don't think it makes any difference to these people at all. Lots of them don't pay tax at all. They're non-doms. And uh, for corporation tax, um, uh, whether it's 19 or 25 or 15, it's second order for most corporations. What's really concerning for them is, is this country run by, uh, is it politically stable? Does it have a government that is going to maintain monetary and fiscal stability? Does it have a good trading environment? Remember, we're a fairly small open economy. They're not going to invest just for our market. They're going to invest for the world market, almost certainly. Um, and the answer to that is, well, we've left the EU, which is our biggest trading partner, and we don't know what those trading relations are going to look like because we're about to go to war over the Northern Ireland Protocol. They've just blown up the idea of fiscal stability by creating a huge spending program with no offsetting tax increases and no idea how the energy package will ultimately be uh, uh, withdrawn. And they've got themselves into a head-on conflict with the central bank. No sensible investor is going to put in money which would obviously be here for 10, 15, 20 years on the basis of the apparently irresponsible promises of a government that in all probability would be gone in two years. It's just not going to work. Um, so the, uh, the idea that this will fundamentally transform the world's view of Britain, well, it's right in a sense what it's convinced the world of is that British conservatives are no longer conservative. Um, for the first time, for the first time, this was not how Thatcher operated. It was not how Cameron or Osborne op operated. What they're seeing uh, is a government pursuing the sort of populist macroeconomics that they're familiar with in Latin America. That's what it looks like to them. Yes, Reagan could get away with it because it's the US, but we're not. So they basically decided, OK, this is a bad bet. They're not going to make huge investments here of a long-term nature. And in the short-term, investors are pulling out. But is there a bit of an overreaction? I mean, not from you, but from the markets and by the Bank of England. Because if you look at, or is is it fair enough? Because the speed at which all of this is coming. I mean, the big surprise, obviously, on Friday. I mean, we knew more or less everything was happening. It was the top rate of tax going down from forty five to percent to forty percent, which, as you said, were you know doesn't it's not going to make much difference. But also, it adds to uh, to government debt. But you know, the big increase in government debt, obviously, is what we had to do, which is supporting households for rising energy costs. That just had to happen didn't it and and it will help contain inflation uh, I, I'm not sure it's going to slow consumption that's the other thing because you know we, we still face that problem with winter shortages uh, perhaps that cap should have been means assessed so richer users change their behavior so we we get rid of that risk of rationing but that cost had to happen the rest of it was just as you say was a reversal I mean a lot of it wasn't really a big surprise so haven't we seen an overreaction to all of this over the last week? I think this is a very interesting set of questions. So let's separate out the elements of it, some of which are more speculative than other bits of it. Um, the, the first bit, and I've written a lot about this, is did something like this energy package have to happen? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, but they've chosen the most expensive and essentially though they haven't admitted it, most open-ended possible option, um, much more so than I would have expected. Um, they could have imposed price controls, not just subsidized it out of government funding. Um, it would have been perfectly reasonable to do so because there are huge excess profits being earned by domestic producers 
um, uh, particularly of renewables and nuclear power, um, uh, but also domestic gas producers, they don't need to get the marginal cost, which is determined by Mr. Putin. It was completely unnecessary. They could have imposed uh, price controls. That would have made a very big difference to the cost. They could have, if they didn't want to do that, imposed a windfall tax. It is a genuine windfall. Nobody planned for the war in Ukraine, which is shocking. Gas prices up uh, tenfold or more. That was um, off the table, of course, because Labour were pushing that, so you can't do that. Obviously. Yeah, well, that's irrelevant. The point is, they decided to put the entire cost mm. on the on the public sector's balance sheet, completely unnecessary, and they promised that this will be over in a couple of years. Well, it might be, but who knows? That depends on what happens to energy prices, and they don't know how this war is going to unfold. There'll probably be some reduction, but we don't know how big it is. So essentially, it's an open-ended, blank check sort of operation with no offset. They made it clear that they're not going to cut, uh, going to increase taxes on anything. That makes clear, that's really important. That makes it clear that the only way they're going to balance the books is through spending cuts, Anybody who looks at Britain knows that to do some really substantial spending cuts will be politically murder in the current situation. In the middle, in the middle of the cost of living crisis, when lots of people are on the edge, massive welfare cuts, NHS cuts, education cuts, um, it's going to be civil war, as it were. Uh, I think that's pretty obvious. In fact, there are huge real cuts in public spending coming about just because of the high inflation, and that's going to cause enough uh, trouble. Some people are going to look at it and say, is this government actually going to see this through? Will it survive? Who is going to be the next government? The second question is, why did markets change their mind? Um, it's often very difficult to know what triggers a panic. When a panic starts, of course, everybody holding these assets looks at these assets and said, well, a, B, C, D, and E are dumping them. I better dump them too because I'm not the Charlie who's going to be left holding them last. And uh, and that's clearly what's happened. And the central bank will have to intervene as we're seeing. But my own sense is uh, that people look don't look at UK very often. The, the, the world's markets don't think this is the most important or interesting country. Um, they don't really focus in, on it. This. A fiscal event with the context that there was no evaluation of it by the OBR, the Treasury is obviously in turmoil, that the, the government is utterly unabashed about the direction of its policies and it thinks that this will magically generate growth. People in the markets looked at this and said, well, this is a moment of evaluation. And they looked at it and they made their evaluation. They decided, I don't need to hold these assets. Why the hell should I hold them? Then, in Martin, the world's context, I want out. But, and once but, but they Martin, start, Martin, everybody starts. So a panic is more or less inevitable. But, but once Martin, the in terms of the happens, let me finish. Once the panic happens, you have to regain credibility. But the credibility, to some extent, is based on the size, potentially, of the UK public debt. And yet, in comparison, we have started off from a position of being very small in terms of proportion of GDP as a debt. I mean, in, in that sense, the government is in a reasonable position, surely. The, uh, the, well, first of all, our debt, like everybody else, has increased massively. Um, we have no central bank to support us that it's global credibility as the ECB does in Europe and the Fed, of course, does in the, the US. But the most important point is the difference between 
a solvent country and an insolvent country is not the level of its debt. It's the confidence people have in the people who manage it. If you look at developing and emerging countries around the world, virtually all of them have lower debt than we do relative to GDP because no one will fund higher debt because they don't trust them. If you allow yourselves to be rated like that, so people say, Actually, this used to be a solid conservative country with chancellors like Philip Hammond or Rishi Sunak who wanted the books to balance and run it in a sober sort of developed country way. Yeah, we will be perfectly solvent. If they think we're run actually by a bunch of lunatics who are perfectly prepared to slash taxes perhaps without limit and promise spending cuts which are never going to happen, then it's no longer solvent. Sovereignty of a country is endogenous. It's not some fact out there. It's what people perceive the country to be like. And there's one very important additional factor. We have an enormous structural current account deficit, which is much more important than our fiscal deficit or our that we need to borrow about 8% of GDP to sustain our economy every year from the rest of the world. Nobody needs to provide those funds. And once people stop, the pound collapses. And when that happens, people say, do I really want to hold this currency? Yeah, well, I'm sure Kwasi Kwarteng was thinking, uh, you know, well, I'll solve that problem because I'll drive a lot of domestic growth through these plans. But, I mean, a point you made uh, in in the paper last weekend was, where is that, uh, where's that growth going to come from? How do you increase productivity when you've already said, well, we don't want any uh, extra labour coming into the country? You know, we'll close that door with Brexit. How do you increase the uh, the output of a country unless you're going to, I think you, you said, well, really, you're going to have to quadruple uh, productivity from, from the workforce that we have. I mean, you know, we are close to full employment. Well, we, we have started off with close to full employment, which is a wonderful thing. There are lots of people out, out of the labour force. Most of them, it appears, because of ill health, which links with the NHS problem. Um, our productivity growth uh, in terms of output per hour, which is the purest productivity, has been about half a percent a year since 2008. And their plan to go to 2.5% growth if you assume no transformation in immigration or uh, somehow we find labor miraculously from the currently ill, um, and that's only a short-term solution, that our productivity growth has to quadruple. Now, there are two really big points to make about that. Economists don't really know very well what drives productivity growth. It sure isn't the tax rate. We know that very well um, because you can compare countries across the world and you can see countries with very high uh, average taxes with much higher productivity and productivity growth than we have, even in Europe and uh, vice versa. So what are the elements of it? They have to get corporate investment up and they have to get it up massively by uh, probably five, four, five, six percentage points of GDP. That has to be funded from somewhere because we already have a huge current account deficit. Where's the funding for that going to happen? What are the corporations that are going to do that? If there's a really big question about corporate governance in our country and the role of pension funds in our country. They're very complicated questions about how we get the investment up. The other side of it is innovation and the rate of innovation. That's even more difficult to decide precisely, but certainly we would have to invest very massively in venture capital, in uh, uh, in making closer the relations between our our universities and our businesses. We'll have to import 
as we've discussed earlier, foreign companies get some of the most dynamic foreign companies to come in and invest heavily in productivity in Britain. For that, they have to believe this is a, an attractive place to invest. And I think it's really hard to do since we've left the European market. There's nothing in the short run you can do to transform it. It's hard work. Mm. And, it, and I guess it's, it's sectoral as well, isn't it? You know, so we are very much a services-based economy, so much more labour-intensive. Uh, and unless we suddenly step up manufacturing and we can uh, automate a lot of the processes, it's going to be hard. I mean, it's easier that to try. very, very important. Uh, we're a service-sector economy and transforming productivity in many services. We do consulting. We do law services. We do these sorts of things very mm. successfully, and we did them very successfully in Europe. But as you noted, you can't easily replace these people with machines. So, so Martin, given everything we've been saying and, and the gloom that clearly uh, is around the economy, I mean, you said these tasks are very difficult to get investment, to, to change the, the productivity issue. But what sort of things could or should Kwasi Kwarteng and this Trust actually be doing to try and advance that? Well, my own view, and God, I've been writing about this for 15 years, certainly since the financial crisis, is we should have been doing this 15 years ago. We made a mistake with the austerity after the crisis. Uh, uh, we made, obviously, an immense mistake. with the, We basically lost six years of the Brexit thing. We shouldn't be starting from here. Well, that's the classic, uh, isn't it? But we are, we are. Is, the answer is a plan. I'm fully are willing to and enthusiastic about seeing an, a properly coherent plan for growth. And it would have a demand side, but above all supply side elements, which are fundamental. It would look at planning restrictions uh, in our country, which are obviously a big obstacle to movement of people and the development of new uh, business. We would look at uh, the structure of corporate taxation, the role of pension funds. I think all our pension funds need to be consolidated, and we've made some very big effect mistakes on that. We obviously have to get a settled trading environment. So we have to settle with the EU. I think we should ultimately go back into the single market. I think that's essential. And in the longer term, I believe that will be possible. Uh, um, and certainly should be something we should be trying uh, trying to do. We need a stable tax regime uh, which can fund the fundamental services. We need to invest massively in skills and in research and development. I mean, really massively and in infrastructure. Over time, if we do these things, and I actually the levelling up white paper had a lot of very good ideas, and it's been completely buried. It's amazing that was a dominant theme of the, this Tory government. It's been smashed. They had two industrial strategies in the last twelve years, both of which have been demolished. There's no policy stability in this country. Nobody seems to be able to work out a consensual framework in within which to do this. There's a lot of talk about Singapore on Thames. Now, I, know, I happen to know about Singapore. The most striking thing about Singapore, apart from the fact it's not a democracy, not a trivial problem, is a diff difference. But one of the most striking things about Singapore is they've had a settled policy regime for 40 years. That's mm. how you do this. So it sounds like you're saying, well, okay, the, the supply-driven uh, growth does have a future, uh, but it, but it, but it, oh, com it comes from 
breaking down the barriers that are that are stopping that uh, that supply growth, not from this this idea that well, if you just uh, lower taxes, people are going to uh, are going to invest more. There's uh, that's too simplistic, and that's exactly the point. I'm not saying that tax policy isn't part of it. Our mm. tax system is a mess, and we can make many very big improvements in it. The Institute for Fiscal Studies has written excellent work on this: reforming the tax system, corporate tax, all important. But the idea that that alone will generate a fundamental transformation of growth is, I honestly think, we've now got the evidence from the last 40 years of this. It doesn't work. Growth strategies are difficult, complicated, and they have to be long-term and credible. What about public spending in all this, Martin? Because, you know, that's been, if you like, I suppose, what has been the battleground in the past and maybe less so now because it seems both the Labour and the Tories want to spend more, appear to, though we may have, I guess, public spending cuts given what's been happening in the economy now. But in terms of where you're saying where the economy should be, how much should we be investing in the NHS, the education system, all the rest of it? Well, my view for about 25 years, uh, being boring about this, is that we have tried... um, to run a sort of European welfare state come state with American levels of tax. And that doesn't work. Uh, Constantly runs into fiscal problems and unsatisfactory public services. I happen to be one of those people who believe that we do need, for a whole raft of reasons of which this is part, higher average tax rates. And I think we can perfectly well cope with higher average tax rates. Uh, every one of the far more successful continental countries like Germany and the Netherlands have very significantly higher average tax rates than we do. That, that means the average person would pay more tax and the top people would definitely pay more tax. Um, we're talking about maybe four, five, six percentage points of GDP. That seems to me absolutely fine. Aging makes this necessary and our welfare commitments. I second believe, I believe in our welfare commitments. I think keeping a sane, decent society requires us to make sure that everybody can live it's a borderline decent life, whatever misfortune happens to them. But more important, and this is crucial, many of these spending, public spending, areas are not marginal to growth they're essential to it having a healthy population having a well-educated population having a population which has the capacity to um, acquire skill and change their skills in their lifetime thus the lifetime learning um, uh, commitment of the the johnson government which is still out there and i don't know what's going to happen to it um having an edu- having first rate infrastructure having universities properly funded and scientific and research maintaining our position as one of the world's leading scientific countries these are all things that are needed and for those to work one needs a public role and a private role it's you know, not done the- just by the private sector the the idea that you can basically close down the government and it'll all work perfectly well is just completely wrong well in this in this in this age uh, where you're either very left wing or very right wing you you are very left wing uh, according to the very right wing brigade no, Let me- no, i would consider myself absolutely centrist yes uh, absolutely so centrist uh, As does the Labour Party middle, now. I accept neither the extreme left nor the extreme uh, right. And I think only if we have policies which combine 
the market. The market is a wonderful institution. I believe in the market. I believe in free trade and I believe in competition passionately. But it's not enough. You also need a functioning state which provides essential public services, ensures everybody has a, at least a minimum standard of living and ensures fundamental public goods the environment, infrastructure, education, health, uh, and so forth, are supplied. And that has always seemed to me what sensible Torah conservatives used to believe and what sensible uh, mm. social democrats used to believe, and that's the tradition in which I operate. Now, this might be a bit unfair. I'm going to quote somebody from another newspaper, Ambrose Evans Pritchard in The Telegraph earlier this week. Uh, and he made the point that, you know, our public debt is is better than many other places. He says the UK faces difficult times. This is not an economic crisis and it's not in worse shape than Europe, nor does it have higher inflation. In fact, contrary to what we're led to believe, the August tally was 9.9% in the UK and 10.1% in the EU. And he blames all that's happening, all this conjecture as the uh, pathological catastrophism of the uh, pro-Brussels commentariat that he says is becoming a national cancer. I mean, mm. has he got a point? Are, are we talking ourselves down a bit? Are you, are you a member of that commentariat? As he's well, from uh, his point of view, from my point of view, the cancer is a bunch of irresponsible nationalist lunatics who think that any involvement with an engagement in the world on a sensible basis is a criminal conspiracy against the long-term interests of this country. So I regard them definitively as the cancer, and I think by now they have demonstrated it beyond the slightest doubt. The the damage they have inflicted through Brexit is, I think, transparently obvious. Uh, As to the uh, economy... Um, I actually happen to believe the inflation problem is basically the same as the rest uh, of Europe, and the public debt is also sorry, the public right. debt is also um, more or less in line, though it's increased uh, massively. Um, but the uh, but, and it's a pretty big but, over the last uh, fifth, what is it, fourteen years, we have had exceptionally low growth by European standards. Our productivity growth has been down with Italy, which is really, really worrying. And we put our, this, the increase in standard of living, household disposable incomes for the non-punctioner population seems, so far as we can see, to be the weakest for 150 years, certainly for 100 years. Uh, so living standards have been essentially stagnant over this long, uh, long uh, period. Our investment rate is the lowest in the G7. Actually, it's the lowest in, in Europe, apart from Greece over the last 10 years. Our corporate investment rate is nearly, is nearly nothing. We have, uh, and it's exceptionally low, we have uh, um, a pretty limited corporate sector of our own um, with very few really globally competitive large businesses. So what he's talking about is completely irrelevant to the long-term performance mm. of the country. Inflation today, public debt today are neither here nor there. They could have easily have avoided this mess by just indicating that they were still concerned to manage a reasonably sound fiscal position. That's just a necessary condition for changing this. What people have concluded is these people are responsible lunatics because they don't have 
a serious growth strategy because they don't understand what drives economic growth. And Ambrose Evans Pritchard's list just shows he doesn't understand the problem. The problem is long term. The problem is not the mess they've made today. The problem with the mess they've made today is that it's convinced people that in addition to all those problems, the people in charge are not responsible people. One of the other targets that that, that, that he has also been, been, been attacking is the Bank of England. I mean, this has become something people talk about. Well, is it time perhaps to change the basis to, to, to withdraw the independence? How do you think that the Bank of England has responded in all this? Has it, is it doing the right things? Is it Does it seem to be at least on top of things in a way that perhaps the government isn't? Yeah, and let me add to that, given that, you know, the day before that uh, that supposedly mini budget last week, I mean, they were there, they were meeting and they were saying, you know, we are going to continue with our, uh, our, our quantitative tightening. Uh, they knew what was coming down. They may not have known the scale of it, uh, but they would. They would. They knew that there would be more government bonds being issued. But they were still saying, "Well, we're going to toss more of ours back into into the market." They must have known what impact that was going to have on yield. So this idea that they've reversed it this week, I mean, there's a certain inevit- inevitability in all of that, isn't there? Well, I think you've underlined the responsibility of the government. Mm. Um, economists um, focus on something called fiscal dominance. What is fiscal dominance? It's a situation in which government deficits are so large that um, it's almost impossible to get them funded in the market at reasonable rates. And at that point, in a fiscally dominant country, the central bank is forced to buy the debt. Um, And that's basically a pretty good description of Argentina over the last half century. It's a fiscally dominant country and people don't trust it. They're domestic citizens and foreigners don't trust the government. And whenever they run large deficits, which is often because the fiscal pressure forces them to do so, the bank, the central bank is forced to buy the currency. And that is, by the way, uh, the most effective way to hyperinflation. I'm not forecasting hyperinflation, but that's the description. Now, we move to an independent central bank because of a very long period, we had a relatively poor inflation record as a high-income country, really relatively poor. The worst inflation in the 70s, the major G7 countries and so forth. And that's why we adopted monetarism in the 80s. When that didn't work, we moved to inflation targeting, then independent central bank. And the independent central bank delivered us reasonable inflation stability over a long period. And so it was a very satisfactory outcome with low interest rates rates, but because partly we had a responsible government. Now, what you're saying, and the people who are arguing this now are saying we should end this, we should go back to fiscal dominance. In other words, the government can do whatever it likes, and the central bank should print the money. And by the way, uh, that will generate vast increases in inflation, but that doesn't matter. People should consider that themselves lucky to own sterling and but they don't consider themselves lucky to own sterling in this situation. In other words, the central bank is our bulwark against precisely the nonsense we're seeing from this government. Um, The open-ended fiscal deficits, which they are running, massive ones, um, and nobody knows when they'll stop. Now we can say, well, the central bank should be doing what the government tells it to do and not making it difficult for the government. My view is the central bank should do the job it does for us, not for the government, for us to protect our currency from the depredations of irresponsible governments. And if that means makes it difficult for the government, that's fine. It's their job. Naturally, this government will want to end 
independence of the central bank because they want to use the central bank to support their completely unjustified so-called growth program. Of right. course, that will lead to consequences. Uh, that will lead to a real clash between the central bank and the government. Um, or the central bank will be subverted. Uh, the consequence of subverting the central bank will be very, very bad for all of us. And maybe at the end of this, we will have completely destroyed the pound as a, as a credible currency in the world. But it's clear to me the bank is now in a terribly difficult situation because for the first time since the early 70s, we have a truly irresponsible government. Uh, and, uh, and that will lead to a clash. And I'm absolutely clear that in this clash, the, the central bank stands on the side of the people at large, not the government, which, incidentally, this prime minister, this government was not elected. No, I know. Exactly. Mm. That's the irony. I know. Listen, Martin, I really wish I feel like you're holding back. Yes. I really wish you'd, you'd speak <laughs> your mind. But just on the on the Bank of England and, and, the, and the government spending, I mean, they to an extent, OK, the tax cuts, which is actually a, the, the smaller part of, uh, of this extra spending by the government, the large part, obviously, is the, is, the, is the fuel subsidies. So if they'd pushed ahead with that and hadn't gone for the growth and uh, tax cuts agenda, do you think we would have not been seeing any of this? We would have just quietly, I mean, because there would still would be a lot of bonds being issued, a lot of extra government spending happening, and the Bank of England would have to react to that somehow, because presumably we'd see bond yields rising as as more uh, bonds were, were were issued, and and they'd have to control that somehow. But you think all of that would have been containable? We wouldn't have had this crisis if they'd stopped there. They'd, if they'd said, well, okay, there is going to have to be a lot more government spending. We had furlough. Now we've got a, a an energy crisis. There's not a lot we can do about it. It's the fact that they've uh, what spooked the markets is they've thrown this third party in, which is that here's our untested agenda to try and drive growth. That's the big concern. I don't know, because guessing what the markets would have thought is difficult. Mm. I was already very critical of in the detail of the way the energy package was structured on, in the ways I've already discussed. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been perfectly possible. I'm absolutely clear that they were right to have a big energy package. There's never any doubt mm. in my mind. And I'm also clear that they needed to control prices one way or the other. They chose the most expensive possible and most unfunded possible option. And I think it would have been safer and more sensible to do one that didn't have those characteristics and made clearer how they were going to get out of it. Mm. Um, but the markets might have said, okay, that's a temporary program. It had to be done almost certainly have happened under Rishi Sunak in much the same way. Then you throw these large unfunded tax cuts, which are on forever, without any plan to adjust that. So we've got substantial increase in the long-term fiscal deficit with some suggestions that so a lot more to come. We don't know what more might be to come, but since these tax cuts are so economically irrelevant, the logic of their own growth program would suggest they're going to do lots more of it who knows what that is? And finally, the government is doing that, pushing aside all the normal internet institutional institutionalized transparency. No, no forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility uh, above all, and and they're clearly setting up for a conflict with the, the central bank. Now, if you mm. add all these things together, people outside. They don't follow British politics in detail. 
They know we did Brexit and they mostly don't understand why we did it, still don't. And they're trying to say, is Britain, the old Britain, a safe, solid, boring, not very fast growing, but sort of normal developed country? Or is it run by um, people with some sort of passionate ideology we don't understand whose implications are rather frightening? Then you can get ticked off by the IMF into the bargain. Is that it's the latter. Yeah, we're becoming the new Italy in many ways, aren't we? Politics as, as well. As well as the new Argentina, by the way, <laughs> as well. So, we, we are beginning to look less like our old selves. Mm. I mean, you've quoted some people at me. I've just received a message from my long-standing friend, Tim Condon, a very well-known monetarist who actually wrote for Margaret Thatcher, and he points out in this that the one thing she was absolutely clear about throughout her entire government, and I remember this very well, she did much bigger tax cuts, much bigger reforms than anything has been discussed here. They were very big and serious. Some of them good, some of them didn't work so well. But she was absolutely clear with her, Jeffrey Howe, Nigel Lawson, all of them, that we had to maintain our fiscal credibility and we had to show a sound fiscal position. And she did this because she was a sensible, reasonable woman who understood the risks of the world. And what people have now, I think, deciding that doesn't apply to Liz Truss. She's not Thatcher. She's not talking about sound money and the way that Thatcher did. She believed in sound money. Exactly. And Tim points this out. And anybody who denies this difference, these modern fanatics on the Brexiter wing, are denying the reality of the person they say they most admire. Martin, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating and somewhat alarming uh, ideas about uh, where the UK economy is going. But many, many thanks for speaking to us. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Pleasure. Bye. The risk is now that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss, uh, and we, you know, we we talked about it a little bit there to try and regain their fiscal credibility. They are going to say, "Oh, look, we're going to engage in uh, in in big spending cuts," which, of course, you know, means which is going to be electoral suicide, as as Martin was pretty much uh, yeah. suggesting there. But of course, the NHS inevitably would have to be part of that, and and with a, with an NHS that's already saying it's on its knees, and we're not even into winter quite yet. Uh, that's great. So it is, but you know what? And uh, and we're going to talk about this next week. And I might be unpopular in some ways because I've uh, lived, yeah, I know. Imagine that. It's, it's hard to believe. I know, but you know, I've spent twenty five or thirty years uh, living under a different health system that I think works better in Australia. And I think we can learn a lot from uh, from what they're doing. This idea that everything has to be free because we've all paid our taxes. We've got to have a reality check on that. Uh, so Ooh, uh, you're not going to be popular. Free at the point of delivery is a very very major. Yeah, maybe. Of what makes the NHS the NHS? Maybe it was also what makes the NHS very expensive and uh, therefore not serving people as well as it could. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, let's talk about that next week because I think that's a real question we, we need to ask. We will drill into it. But that's pretty much it from us for this week. Thank you for listening. That was, of course, the Y Curve. The Y Curve. <laughs>